The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shemong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org. profound, minutely subtle, pervading the entire universe, revealing right here, right now, is rarely experienced, even in hundreds, thousands, millions of eons. We can see it. We can listen to it. We can express and know it. May we completely understand and actualize this Tathagata's true meaning. Even if one glimpses God, there are still cuts and splinters and burns along the way. So often we anticipate a reward for the uncovering of truth. For effort, we expect money and recognition. For sacrifice and kindness, we secretly expect acceptance and love. For honesty, we expect justice. Yet, as we all know, the life of experience unfolds with a logic all its own. And very often, effort is seen and kindness is embraced and the risk of truth is held as the foundation of how humans relate. However, the reward for breathing is not applause, but air. And the reward for climbing is not a promotion, but new sight. And the reward for kindness is not being seen as kind, but the electricity of giving that keeps us alive. It seems the closer we get to the core of all being, the more synonymous the effort and its reward. Who could have guessed? The reward for uncovering truth is the experience of honest being. The reward for understanding is the peace of knowing. The reward for loving is being the carrier of love. It all becomes elusively simple. The river's sole purpose is to carry water. And as the force of the water deepens and widens the riverbed, the river fulfills its purpose more. Likewise, the riverbed of the heart is worn open over time to carry what is living. All this tells us that no amount of thinking can eliminate the wonder and the pain of living. No wall or avoidance or denial, no cause or excuse can keep the rawness of life from running through us. 
While this may at times seem devastating, it is actually reassuring and liberating. Because while the impermanence of life, if fixed on, can be terrifying, leaving us preoccupied with death and insecurity, the very same impermanence, if allowed its infinite frame, can soothe us with the understanding that even the deepest pain will pass. Good evening. We are here this evening to talk about the nature of being spiritual. What does it mean to be truly spiritual? We are here, and I will assume, to have this conversation together because perhaps somewhere tonight or before tonight we have identified ourselves as spiritual beings. Or we have chosen to travel what we call a spiritual path. With that possibility, it is necessary, especially given the current events of both our nation and throughout the world, I believe, to engage in the conversation of what it truly means to be spiritual. The late Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche went to great lengths, and in his most popular and well-known book, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism, was emphatic that his students, his disciples, his lineage, had a real clarity about spirituality. In the book, Cutting Through Spirituality, he begins by saying, while I am absolutely convinced about the sincerity of what we have come to identify as our spirituality, I am not so sure about its nature. In the same book, he goes on to explain to his students, warning them that ego, that part of our consciousness that he says in the writing, uses anything, including spirituality, for its benefit, must always be at the forefront of our inquiry. So if you were with me two Saturdays ago, I presented what I call the anatomy of the mind. Understanding is a quintessential part of Zen spirituality, particularly understanding the nature of mind, and how that part of our consciousness we refer to, what Chogyam refers to as ego, operates from moment to moment. So I think that in order for us to have this conversation tonight, we need to create a particular context and begin with understanding that while we talk about ego and how it operates in our lives from moment to moment, in the context of the question, what does it really mean to be spiritual? The teachings of Chogyam Trungpa play a vital part in our understanding. Ego is constantly using whatever it can to appease that part of our consciousness, which 2,500 years ago the Buddha identified as the cause of our suffering. So we need to think about that for a moment. Often, even our spiritual practice, particularly in the West, tends to be a means of appeasing ego. We approach spirituality 
especially as Americans, born into and operating in on a daily basis a material or consumer-oriented culture and society, we tend to even approach spiritual practice or being spiritual from that same consciousness. That is to say, we use spirituality to either achieve something, to become something, or to gain something more, something better, and something different. And this is the spirituality that Chögyam Trungpa warned his students about. He called it spiritual materialism. That when being spiritual is really about, again, even finding more peace in my life. That is to say that on any given day I find myself stressed and anxious, so I'll go to the cushion and I'll use the spiritual practice of meditation. Or perhaps I'll go to a yoga center and do some uh, postures as a means of, again, trying to become more peaceful and less stressful. This approach to spirituality is what he warned his students was wrong effort, born from wrong understanding of what it really means to be spiritual. Being spiritual from, again, the place of Zen has to do with something far deeper and far more profound than, again, using spirituality as a means to appease ego, especially when ego is finding itself distressful, anxious, fearful, and worrisome. From the Zen perspective, spirituality has to do with identity, or what I call the principle of identity. It has to do with using the ancient teachings as an expression of who one truly is in the world, what I call practicing authentic spirituality. So again, when we ask the question, what does it mean to be spiritual? The only context that I find appropriate to explore or inquire into its answer has to do with the words of Pierre de Chardin. So if I want to know what it really means to be spiritual, or to live spiritually in the world, I need to hear his words when he says to us, you and I are not human beings in search of a spiritual experience. Even though when you take a look at most people in the West, their spirituality is best identified with that. They experience themselves as human beings and they go in search of the spiritual experience, whatever that may be, whether through meditation, through yoga, through energy work, whatever uh, avenue they may choose, in search of that spiritual experience. He went on to say, you and I are spiritual beings immersed in the human experience. And with that final statement in that particular context, he defines for us the only proper ground to explore the question, what does it mean to be spiritual? What does it mean to live spiritually in the world? For 42 years now, I have repeatedly written about this and spoken about my conviction that the world's problems are sourced in our individual and collective inauthenticity. We are living lives and we are living cultures and social interactions 
in ways that are contrary to who we truly are and what we truly are. And the principle of identity dictates that when I am coming from authenticity, when I am living as a spiritual being who finds himself or herself in this particular lifetime immersed in the human experience, it goes that I need to know, or I prefer saying, I need to remember what I knew at birth, how to live as a spiritual being in the world, how to be spiritual in the world, rather than seeing spirituality again as a means toward appeasing uh, ego's discomfort, uncertainty, fear, and worryment about life. When we approach spirituality from a consumer-oriented uh, context, when we approach it from a materialistic context, whereby it becomes, again, something we do in order to have or in order to become, this is the same stuff, no matter what we call it. It's no different than, again, that particular culture that we find ourselves immersed in in our society that is always about the pursuit of happiness. Spiritual beings, for example, those individuals, those awakened bodhisattvas who have realized that their true nature is the stuff of the cosmos, that their true nature is spiritual, begin with and come from spirituality. Their identity, being spiritual, informs their life in a way that their perspective or point of view, which the Buddha identified in the Eightfold Noble Paths as quintessential, the first of the Eightfold Path being right point of view. Having that point of view of being spiritual, their spirituality informs their life rather than their life informs their spirituality. One of my own pet peeves over the years has to do with practitioners of the way, who when time, in times of crisis, one of the first things they give up is their spiritual practice. I don't have enough time to meditate. I don't have enough time to pray. I don't have enough time to maintain a regular practice in yoga or the other schools of energy and so forth. That seems to always be the first thing they sacrifice in times of crisis, in times of trouble. For the Buddhist, we have three refuges. When things get dark and in times of trouble, I take refuge in my true nature, my Buddha nature. I remember that I am a spiritual being, and being a spiritual being, being a Buddha, I possess within me already all that I need to meet the challenges before me. In times of trouble, I refer to the teachings, I take refuge not only in the teachings, often referred to as Dharma, but in the Dharma itself when it is used to define the very stuff that runs the universe. Another way that I often enjoy saying it is that the universe is designed to work. It's not designed to fail. And everything within it is designed to live at the level of all victorious mastery. So it goes that in times of uncertainty, when I find myself caught up in egocentricity, I find myself trapped in fear and worriment, I take refuge in that fact, that dharma. 
And last but not least, and it seems particularly in our culture in the West, the most difficult teaching is to take refuge in the Sangha. The importance of being part of a community of individuals who either already have awakened to their true nature or are on the path of cultivating the ground for that awakening. There is nothing like sharing times of uncertainty and difficulty with other like-minded people. Nothing more supportive and nothing more constructive. So the Buddha said, for spiritual beings, life is about taking refuge in our true nature. And by that we mean coming from a place of being spiritual and not in search of spiritual experiences, not viewing meditation or the other practices as a means to achieving some kind of level of awareness or some kind of level of, um, of certainty, if you will, in times of uncertainty. We operate from the place that we are all Buddhas, as Buddha Shakyamuni declared on the day of his own enlightenment, and we function in the world it follows spiritually as second nature, not as something again to be used to achieve any particular objective or any particular goal. Taking refuge in the Dharma realizes itself as a powerful refuge when we understand that the teachings support us and the teachings have uh, the power and the ability to open up in us those blocked areas of our lives or our consciousness in particular that again continues to be confused or frustrated, fearful, and so forth. And by the teachings, and we'll talk more about this in a moment, by the teachings in the context of tonight's conversation, I mean the virtues and the precepts and the principles of the spiritual life. Maizumi Roshi wrote a fabulous book about your life as a vow. And in, his, and in his book, he talked about how, again, for the Zen Buddhas, the vow, that vow I make to live this way, and the keeping of that vow was the alpha and the omega of a truly successful spiritual life, a truly successful life, if you will. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. So I want to invite you to begin to take a look at the difference again between spirituality as a means towards something, whatever that something may be for you at the moment, meditating to achieve some goal or some objective, uh, living religiously through prayer perhaps or attendance of mass or receiving the sacraments for many Catholics for example, as a means towards getting to heaven, while all the teachings point to that that very place we're trying to get to is already here. So again, Rumi says to us that your work, meaning our spiritual work, is not to do things to get something, in particular as love, but to live in this way so that all of the psychological and emotional barriers we have built up in our lifetime can be discovered first and dismantled in order to see the pure land now, in order to see who we truly are now, in order to live authentically now.
Divinity has one ultimate secret, which it will also whisper in your ear if your mind becomes quieter than the fog at sunset. The God of this world is found within, and you know it is found within. In those hushed, silent times when the mind becomes still, the body relaxes into infinity. The senses expand to become one with the world. In those glistening times, a subtle luminosity, a serene radiance, a brilliantly transparent clarity shimmers as the true nature of all manifestation, erupting every now and then in a compassionate radiance before whom all idols retreat. A love so fierce it adoringly embraces both light and darkness, both good and evil, both pleasure and pain equally. For I make the light to fall on the good and the bad alike. I, the Lord, do all these things. A compassionate embroiling heat so painful it will melt your bones while you hurl yourself to the ground with awe and supplication and reverence and surrender. And just when you're bowing to that radiance, thrown to the ground by a force that crushes mind and body and ego into microscopically insignificant dust, just at that point exactly, that is when it whispers. In barely audible words, a whisper like a beautiful woman calling your name on a shining, silvery, moonlit night. You are bowing to yourself. Don't you remember who and what you really are? Did not even Saint Clement say, he who knows himself knows God? Deeper than nature, deeper than the body, deeper than the mind, deeper than thoughts altogether, a luminous shimmering radiance pours out of the heart reflects through the crown and lights up the entire universe. The real secret of the divine, the light of the sun and the stars and all of nature comes directly from your very own heart. Wordsworth saw that light, an auxiliary light, came from my mind which on the setting sun bestowed new splendor. And you can see it too, in those quiet times when you forget the shadows in the cave and start to turn toward the blazing, radiant light of all. So I have a confession to make. I began my studies of spirituality as a teenager. And I met some people who were teaching about spirituality and I decided I wanted, I wanted in. I wanted to learn with them. I wanted to be with them. And it wasn't till many, many years later, about 40 years later, that I realized what my first impetus, why I wanted to study, why I wanted to get involved. It was because as a teenager, I decided, like I think many teenagers, that you know, this, this emotional stuff that I'm learning to deal with, that I'm learning to have in my life, it really hurts. It can really hurt. 
So if there's a way to avoid that pain, if there's a way for me to avoid feeling, that's what I want. That's what I decided I wanted as a teenager. And I met these people who said, you know, spiritual people don't give in to all that feeling stuff. They really, they really, if they experience it, you wouldn't know. They tend to be really, really straight and, 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 and stable, you know, like rocks. And at the time, and this was all unconscious, again, I didn't realize this till 40 years later, I thought, wow, that sounds like what I'm interested in, because this feeling stuff, this getting involved with the world and love, and all, it hurts, and I don't want to be hurt. I don't want to be hurt. So for me, the entry into spiritual practice and spirituality was the avoidance of feeling and the avoidance of feeling pain especially. So as the Roshi talks about the refuges that we have in Zen, in Buddhism, I totally disavowed my Buddha nature in that way by saying, I don't want to be true to who I am. I don't want to be authentic. It's too painful. It hurts too much. And I'm not going to listen to the Dharma. I'm not going to listen to the teachings that are trying to get me to be more authentic and get me to feel what I'm feeling and experience what I'm experiencing. And Sangha, community, that really hurts. Those kinds of relationships and things that we can get into cause tremendous pain. So I don't want that either. And I embarked on what I thought was very, very serious spiritual practice. And I'm sure it was. You know, it's there's sneaky ways that, that, that our Buddha nature, that God gets us to do the things that we need to do in life. And it wasn't until about 40 years later in my continuing studies that things started coming apart, started really coming apart. Because, of course, if you're going to be true to who you are and you're going to be authentic to your nature, that involves feeling. You heard the reading. The, our nature, our true nature, God is with us in light and in darkness, in pain and in pleasure. You'll often hear a Roshi quote that pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. Suffering is optional. And I, cre I got into a place of such torment with these feelings that I had been ignoring for so long that they finally came to the surface. And I realized, I started reading things about spiritual bypassing. Uh, Robert Augustus Masters wrote a book called Spiritual Bypassing. And it talks about, he's a psych psychologist that's also a spiritual teacher, and he talked about this very principle of delving into spirituality for the purposes of avoidance or because, as Roshi said, we want something else out of it. There's something that we're looking for to get out of it. And that's what I did. And it required me to go through a lot of psychoanalysis, a lot of, of, of therapy to be able to see what this true spiritual nature was versus my needy nature, versus my ego nature. And to get to the place where instead of denying the treasures that are offered to us, the divine treasures, I had to accept those. 
as, who, as the way the universe really is. And I have to tell you that this experience of holding down the truth, holding down my feelings, holding down what I knew to be the tr truth, and having it come and smack me in the face at a later time, I believe is exactly what we're seeing in society today. Our society has spent so much time, especially American society, saying we are the best, we are the brightest, we have the best medical system, we're not prejudiced, our police are honest, we, 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 you know, on and on and on, we don't make trouble in the world. We know. We've said that, we're, we've said we're the greatest, and we've, we've ignored our true nature, we've ignored the fact, just as I ignored the fact that I had faults, I had feelings, I had impulses. We've ignored the fact for so long that we have a lot going on in this country that we don't deal with and we don't acknowledge. And what happens? What happens to the country is what happened to me as an individual. It surfaces. It comes out and it smacks us. And that's what we're seeing in the world today. So I think that we're going to talk about what to do about that. What do we do? What's the next stage? And how do we deal with these issues? Being true to who we are means carrying our spirit like a candle in the center of our darkness. If we are to live without silencing or numbing essential parts of who we are, a vow must be invoked and upheld within oneself. The same commitments we pronounce when embarking on a marriage can be understood internally as a devotion to the care of one's soul, one's identity, one's true nature, to have and to hold, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. This means staying committed to the path. This means not separating from yourself when things get tough or confusing. This means accepting and embracing your faults and your limitations as well as your greatness. It means loving yourself unconditionally no matter how others see you, no matter how you see yourself. It means cherishing the unchangeable radiance that lives within you, no matter the cuts and bruises along the way. It means building your life with a solemn pledge to the truth of who you truly are. It is interesting that the nautical definition of marry is to join two ropes, two ropes end to end by interweaving their strands. To marry one's true nature suggests that we interweave the life of our spirit with the life of our psychology, the life of our heart with the life of our mind the life of our faith and truth with the life of our doubt and anxiety. 
And just as two ropes that are married create a tie that is twice as strong, when we marry our humanness to our spirit, we create a life that is doubly strong in the world. So, for the spiritual being, and for the person being spiritual in the world, there is a saying in Zen, not to. For the spiritual being, the life of the mind and body, the life we are called to live in the world, but not of the world, not to. When one is truly being spiritual in the world, living from a place of authenticity, it's all spiritual. One of the very first lessons I learned on my first trip to Japan had to do with that there was a whole culture that I was engaging with at that time for the first time in my life who saw life that way. I remember one day asking a Japanese person who I was having tea with, what religion are you? And he looked at me confused. He was surprised that I even asked the question. And he said, let me tell you this. In Japan, he said, when the child is born, you call the Shinto priest. When the child is ready to be married, you call the Franciscan priest. And when the child is ready to be buried, you call the Buddhist priest. It's all spiritual, he said. And for the next 30 or more days and years later on, when I would return occasionally, when I was able to, I witnessed a society that lived and treated everything in their society at a level of excellence. The way they would say hello, the way they would say goodbye, the way I would go into a supermarket and be greeted and how they would pack the bag and how they would pack the items in the bag. The way they treasured nature rather than seeing it as oppositional when they decided to build a new building or a new part of the road and so forth. Everything was about being spiritual. And that witness is not about the Japanese people. That witness is about a culture that obviously we find the final length of the journey of Zen Buddhism from China to Japan, where it is refined and finally perfected, and that it is the spirituality or religion of my life, and so forth. For the spiritual person, life matters in the context of being spiritual as a means of benefiting life, and not the other way around. By that I mean, again, over and over again, we often, and it is a cultural conditioning that all of us, myself included, must confront somewhere in our journey before we can move on and grow. And that is we see things, even our spirituality, as a means toward benefiting ourself. For the spiritual person, the vow, as Martin Nepo's writing I just shared with you talks about, that vow and the vow coupled with the teachings of Maizumi Roshi on the Zen perspective of a vow informs every area of the being's life. 
informs, as I often say to people, when I am here at the monastery, dressed and looking as a monk, I am a monk. When I am at a restaurant having a martini and dinner at a bar, I am a monk. When I am dealing with aging and dying parents, I am a monk. When I am dealing with my seven-year-old daughter, I am a monk. The vows I have taken to live in a particular way inform my entire life because the context of my entire life and, you know, I wish my mother could talk to you today, she can't, but some of you, I believe, Rabbi was there on the day that she told that crowd, he came out of the womb this way. Yeah. I have never not known a time in my life where I never, where I did not know I was a spiritual being immersed in a human experience. And the most difficult lesson for me to write about and talk about in the 42 years of my life as a teacher is convincing others about the quintessential primary, if not exclusive, uh, uh, principle of one's life being that of authenticity. Until we learn to come from a place of being spiritual in the world, rather than using spirituality to create a world we would prefer rather than the one we have, nothing is going to change. Problems are not going to be solved. World uh, crises will just continue and compound. As the rabbi mentioned a moment ago, we are seeing today. What we are witnessing today is a function of our inauthenticity. And a friend of mine once said, the first step to changing all of this is to become authentic about our inauthenticity, to tell the truth, and then the truth can set us free. To come from a place of being spiritual is not just a way of life, it is a <coughs> way of being. And that way of being informs one's way of life, and that way of living in the world, which includes my choices, my decisions, the things I purchase in the store, the way I spend and don't spend my money, how I greet and say hello, how I treat everyone I come in contact with. Richard War, uh, a Franciscan priest very famous in the contemplative world, of modern society today, the Catholic society particularly, writes a great deal about this recently when he says, we cannot discriminate with who we forgive. We cannot discriminate with who we will love or not love and be children of God. We are our vow to live in this particular way. We must be married to and it must be married to us for better or for worse, in good times and in bad, and especially in bad times, in sickness and in health, to the day I die. To live at that level is to live at the level of all victorious mastery, to live at the level of excellence, and it is the only true spirituality. It is the spirituality of the prophets. It was the spirituality of, of the messiahs. It is the spirituality of the Buddhas and the yogis of India 
and, and uh, uh, Tibet and so forth. And it is the spirituality of the Zen masters who, again, handed down those teachings and those principles to us today. We cannot compromise those teachings and that way of being just because we are a modern society. And we are seeing the results of that, as the rabbi suggests, in our world today. We have compromised our spirit, our spirit and our heart so much that we are witnessing today a suffering at a level of almost insanity, if not already. Certainly, for sure. So how do we get back? How do we return? And this word return is synonymous with the word repent in the faith-based traditions. And this word repent means to turn around, means to stop going in the direction we've been going in, especially when that direction repeatedly proves to us not to work, and to turn around and to return to the knowledge and the experience of a time when we knew better and pick up from there again. And then once returned, once reconciled, we need to, again, cease the practice of compromising those principles. I often tell a story of uh, when Phil Donahue, and again, some of you are too young to probably remember him, but those of you who do remember him, he was probably, I think, the first real talk show host. And Phil Donahue had, on this particular day that I was watching him on his show, uh, Steve Allen and his wife, I think, Audrey Hepburn, or... Audrey Meadows. Audrey something. Yeah, yeah. Audrey Meadows. Audrey Meadows, right. Thank you. Audrey Meadows and, and two other couples who were comedians. But what they all had in common on this particular show was that they had all married, divorced each other, and remarried again. And so, and their marriage after they had remarried the second time, after they had reunited and taken the vows over again, lasted for many years, and, were, and at that time they were all still married. And, and Donahue asked them the question, why do you think this time it worked? And it was Audrey Meadows who answered the question, and she said, when Steve and I remarried the second time and repeated those very same vows, we added one. And what we added was, divorce was not an option this time. Excuses are not an option for the spiritual being. Reasons why I can't forgive is not an option. These are questions that are not optional for the truly spiritual life. Now, as the rabbi so wonderfully shared with us, so courageously shared with us, what not only was so for him, but was also so for me, early on in our life, as grasshoppers, on the path to enlightenment, the whole idea of pain is just as difficult to embrace as it is for anyone else. The whole idea of failure and the pain that comes from that, rejection and the pain that comes from that, is just as difficult as it is for anyone not on a spiritual path, particularly the path of a rabbi or a monk or a priest and so forth. But the teachers have all said the same. So what? It doesn't matter. And until we get to that point, like Audrey Meadows said, running away 
Compromising the principles, compromising our vows is not an option. We will never know the greatness that is waiting to be alive within us. So often I am asked, obviously, or maybe not so obviously, by many people, what is enlightenment? And I have been able to define it in this way. Enlightenment, I believe, is that moment when the being's consciousness shifts from a consciousness of doing spiritual things in order to have to an awakening to the being's true nature as being spiritual, and the life becomes an expression of that. A bird has no problem expressing its life as a bird. It doesn't wake up self-conscious one morning and don't fly, okay? A deer has no problem expressing itself as a deer. It doesn't wake up self-conscious one morning worrying about maybe I should be a squirrel instead of a deer. Human beings tend to be the only species so easily prepared to compromise their nature in order to avoid pain and discomfort and rejection. And part of the spiritual practice, when you read behind the lines, when you read these teachings, as I have engaged them and looked at them, and you read them as the writers and the teachers intended us to read and hear them, it's all about meeting that line of challenge and walking through that fire. As Pema Chodron says, when the next step of your journey is a fire, lean into it. Lean into it. Walk through the flames. Because if you never do, you will never know that you are the fire. You will never know that you are the light. And so the transformation that I think needs to happen for all of us, and it is a transformation that doesn't happen once, and then it's over. Every day of my life, for various reasons that I don't think is important for me to share, my faith, if you will, is challenged. Every day there is not a moment in my day where my faith and my strength to be is challenged. So every day, part of my spiritual practice is to have tea with that challenger and to sit down and reconcile my relationship with it. Every day. That's all part of the formula of being spiritual. Someone once wrote, we are strangers in a strange land. So no wonder we will come up against strange opportunities and moments and confusion and strife and uncertainty. But when your life is the vow to be spiritual, it doesn't matter. This is Ken Wilber, by the way. Whether in the end you believe spiritual practice involves stages or not, authentic spirituality does involve practice. This is not to deny that many people, for many people, beliefs are important, faith is important, religious mythology is important. It is simply to add that as the testimony of the world's great yogis, saints, and sages has made quite clear, authentic spirituality can also involve direct experience of a living reality. 
disclosed immediately and intimately in the heart and consciousness of individuals and fostered by diligent, sincere, prolonged spiritual practice. Even if you relate to spirituality as a peak experience, those peak experiences can often be specifically induced or at least invited by various forms of spiritual practice, such as active ritual, contemplative prayer, shamanic voyage, intensive meditation, and so forth. All of those open one to a direct experience of spirit and not merely beliefs or ideas about spirit. Therefore, don't just think differently. Practice diligently. Roshi's story reminded me in one of my moments of despair when I was trying to find my authentic self and, I, and it was escaping me and I, I, I couldn't find it and I was crying and I went for a walk along a stream and I sat down on the edge of the stream and there was a, a bush, a non-burning bush. Mm-hmm. And I said to the bush, why are you a bush? And the bush spoke back to me. And the bush said, that's the stupidest question I've ever heard in my life. I'm a bush because I'm a bush. And I grow by the side of the stream and I take in the sunlight and I take in the water and I take in nutrition and I grow and that's who I am. And who are you? And at that moment I realized who I was. I wasn't a bush, but if the bush can be a bush, just a bush, a simple bush, I can be simply and purely and authentically who I am as well. So this need that we have, this necessity to vow and and the the diligence and the commitment to spiritual practice is is that vow. What does it mean to take that vow and to go about to be of spiritual consciousness, to be authentic? It means taking ourselves apart from that that false self. What's the opposite of the authentic self? The false self, the egoic self, that part of us that we've put on, that part of us that we, the way we try to live for others' sake or for our contentment rather than for our spirituality, for our authenticity. We take that on. It's, It's like a garment. One spiritual teacher once said to me, The ego is a wonderful tool to have. Every once in a while you take it out of your pocket and you unfold it like a shield to catch the junk that's thrown at you. But the object is to fold it back up and put it in your pocket. You know, sometimes we have to confront things. And when you're coming from an, an authentic spiritual basis, you can confront those things. You experience all things, like the Roshi said, even without the use of the ego. So maybe temporarily you'll use the ego as a shield until you don't need to use it any longer. But as we've touched on, what we're seeing in the world is the result of of inauthenticness. We're seeing in the world this idea that that people try to put things on us. And it's reached such a peak in recent times that what we're learning, by the way, if you listen to the political process and everything that's going on, in the world, there's still great lessons you can learn. For instance, you can learn how 
people will accept things if it's said enough times and loud enough, no matter how untrue it is, and what, what source it comes from. One of my favorite stories that um, the, the great Sufi master Idris Shah used to tell was when he was living in, in London back in the 1960s, they, they, a great astronomer, a Nobel Prize winning astronomer came onto the radio and television and said that and on such and such a date there would be an alignment of planets and the sun and the moon in such a way that it's going to affect the gravitational force of the earth. And it's going to do it minutely, but it's going to do it in such a way that you're going to be able to notice it. So at that, on that day, at a certain time, if you jump up in the air, you'll notice that you don't quite fall as fast, he said. And the, and the radio stations and the TV stations said, let us know your experience. They got four and a half million telephone calls and messages saying, sure enough, I jumped up in the air and I didn't quite fall to the earth fast. Well, it turns out it was April 1st, <laughs> and it was a big joke, but when you get an authority figure up there telling you convincingly that you know, you're not going to fall as fast, people buy. People buy these things, and this is what we're seeing in our society. What's, what's the cure? Authenticity. The cure is, as Roshi mentions, to, to deal with your doubts and to deal in a good way. In other words, recognize you have doubts. People always say to me, you know, if I say to people, do you buy a car based on the commercials? No. I buy a car based, I do careful research, I look at it very carefully, the commercials don't affect me. So I say to them, really, then why is it a multi-billion dollar industry? Because it relies on the fact that we can affect your subconscious mind and have you deny it. In other words, if you say, you know what, I'm going to buy this car. I saw a commercial about this car. I wonder if I'm looking at this car seriously because I saw the commercial. That's a very valuable thing to do rather than, no, 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 the commercial can't affect me. Because in reality, it absolutely can and it does. That's what advertising is all about. So the cure is for us to, when, when we look at something, we say, yeah, that seems to be a good idea, to take a moment, to take that pause, breathe deeply, maybe sit in meditation and say, why am I reacting that way? Why am I reacting that way? Is it from my ego nature that's trying to convince me that this is a good idea? Or is, is it from my authentic nature that, that I need to be coming from at all times? This idea that the Roshi talked about of return, return to who we are. Um, if you're Jewish, you knew, know that very well. In our high holiday season, we talk about this concept of, in Hebrew, it's called tshuva, and it means return. And as the Roshi said, it is the same word as repentance. Return to our true nature. Uh, there was a rabbi who used to sing a song that said, return to who we are, where we are, what we are, born and reborn again, return again, return to who you truly are. And that's the goal. That's what we're trying to do. And I think we're going to talk a little bit, or we should talk about the vital nature of that, and why, especially in the world, and what's happening right now, why it's so important for us to be able to do that.
So those of you who may need to stand up and shake your booty and get a better seat, go ahead and do that. Because we want you to be comfortable. Not too comfortable. <laughs> so in the world of child psychology, when science has explored the question to why children will behave in ways that are both harmful to themselves and others. After years and years of inquiry, they came up with the conclusion, which I support, that it has to do with what they call mixed messages. That when, as small children, when our parents tell us, for example, that they love us, and then behave in ways that do not reflect those words, that is a mixed message that leaves the, child, leaves the child's consciousness in such a state of confusion that when repeated long enough, that confusion becomes compounded. And because of that confusion, the child will respond or react in ways harmful to themselves and others. I would suggest to you that from that day, we lose our authenticity, that is to say, we ignore, as the Buddha explains it in the Second Noble Truth, when he talks about the cause of our suffering and the cause of suffering in the world, which is optional, when he talks about that suffering, he says we suffer because we ignore our true nature and we ignore our intuitiveness, our natural responses to life. And this happens around the time, again, for whatever reason, we are compelled, and usually it is like that, into taking on a new identity. And usually we take on that new identity as a means of survival. That is to say, somewhere someone convinces us that we are not good enough, that we lack, and that in order for us to be loved or appreciated or accepted, we need to become this person and we need to become more like that person. And at that moment, we move again from living authentically in the world to taking on the various different roles and postures, and we start to mimic life. We start to at least mimic the things. And after uh, the things that, again, convince us, will help us you know, survive at a level of feeling accepted at least. And after a lifetime and many, many, many years like that, we bring that same behavior into our spiritual life. When everything else has failed us, and usually we have a saying uh, in Zen monasteries for most people, we call, the, we call most people Zendo hoppers. A Zendo hopper is a person that by the time they get to the Zendo, they've done yoga, they've done energy work, they've, they've been to India, they've been to thousands of retreats, and this is only another hop on the way to the next place, and so forth. And, but by the time they get to uh, the Zendo, again, they've been through an awful lot of roles and mimicking this teaching and that teaching and so forth, that it becomes second nature. And that, second, that false nature, that false identity, again, leads us into believing that if I'm doing the meditation, and if I'm talking the talk, namaste, you know, and so forth, 
If I'm doing all of that, then I'm being spiritual. And we see again, as the rabbi repeatedly uh, states through, uh, so far tonight, we're seeing the results of that in our world. We don't know what to trust because we no longer trust ourselves. And after a lifetime of living at a, at a level of mistrust, no wonder we don't. And we no longer trust others because we don't trust ourselves and so forth. So the interconnected nature of consciousness states that until I resolve this for myself, within myself, there's nothing to be resolved out here. Nothing to be resolved out here. So return, we must. Return, we must. And the most difficult part of taking that first step has to do with the fact that that first step is the next step and the next step and the next step and so forth until death do us part. There is no return until you are committed to return. There is no return until you are committed to not escape. Pema Trogan writes a great deal about this, with, about living with uncertainty. She says, in the spiritual practices, until all escape routes have been eliminated, don't bother. They will not work. They will not produce the results that they are designed to produce only for the person committed, as we say in, again, the fourth vow for all. There are four vows in Zen that whether you're a Zen Buddhist or not, you can recite and take. And the fourth vow is, the Buddha way is endless. I vow to follow it. The Buddha way is endless. I vow to follow it. Or as Audrey Meadows said, this time my return will happen because divorce, escape, giving up is not an option. And that involves also, again back to the reference I made to Richard Rohr, not forgiving anyone is not an option. Not loving anyone is not an option. Not meeting the responsibilities to cultivate and nurture our minds and bodies, again, <coughs> according to the teachings of how to keep ourselves strong and capable. Before we came in here tonight, uh, Rabbi and I were talking about um, again, uh, uh, Wilbur's, uh, one of his books, what was the name of the book? Grace and, no, Grace. Uh, spiritual. The Grace and, Grace. one about his wife. Oh, Grace yeah. and Grit. Grace and Grit. And in it, he repeatedly states what I say often. I don't know how I've made it through the difficult times in my life. Two heart attacks, pulmonary disease, and everything else I deal with, except for my practice except for my training. So perhaps all of us need to get really sick in order to get really committed to doing the things. But I don't, know even if, I don't even know if that's the secret. I was in the company of someone the other day, and she asked me, you know, so how's your pulmonary issues? And I tell her, and, that, that she's, and she has pulmonary issues herself, and she's going on, I know I can't go anywhere without my emergency inhaler. I have to go on the oxygen. And as she was completing, explaining to me her life, she looked at me and she said, and I still smoke. Wow. <laughs> and I said, talk to the hand. <laughs> and walked out. And walked out. You see? 
So without committing unconditionally at the level of Audrey Meadows' statement, divorce was not and is not an option, the return itself becomes just a fleeting effort, becomes a futile effort. So the first step is the second step. As I said a moment ago, every day of my life, I wake up in the morning and recommit to the life of being spiritual in the world. It is a recommitment I make every day. Second, stop looking for your spirituality in special places. One of the attractions to Zen Buddhism for me, after being born and raised Roman Catholic and, and explored all of the many other religions in the course of my journey, one of the attractions is the emphasis that the mundane is divine and that the divine is the mundane. The mundane things in our life is our spiritual life. You know, uh, Mark Nepo's book, the one that I often read from the Book of Awakening, the subtitle is Having the Life You Want by Being Present to the Life You Have. That is the spiritual life. That is the life of the monk. Uh, living almost like a hermit most of the time, except for when my daughter's home or you're here, you know, I have two dogs and two cats and a fish to take care of. And so some mornings I wake up and leave my bedroom and the light is off in the hallway because I know how to get down the hallway by now and so <laughs> forth. But what I often forget is that my cat doesn't respect me. So my cat may have thrown up a hairball that I barefootedly step into, slip, fall down on the floor, but I still have to get to the zendo at a certain hour to have it nice and warm, for those of you who never come, anyway, <laughs> to sit and meditate with me. That's the spiritual life. And then when I'm done meditating, I have to go back and clean up the hairball and, the, and everything else and change the kitty litter and get the dogs out and deal with the puppy that pees every time it gets excited. All of those things. Sound familiar? But that is the spiritual life. Several years ago, a friend of mine, a Benedictine monk living in a monastery, sent me a shirt and it read, you don't have to be a monk to live like a monk. And I used to wear it around a lot because it, it looked good on me, really. That's what <laughs> but I used that saying and expanded on it in a writing on one of my blogs. And I wrote, you don't have to be a monk to live like a monk, but you have to live like a monk. You have to live like a monk, whether you live in a monastery or wear robes or not, because the monk is the vow, however endless the Buddha way is. For endless it is, I vow to follow it. The first of those four vows, uh, sentient beings are innumerable. So many you can't count them. I vow to love every one of them. You see? Desires. Uh, you know, I can't tell you the number of calls I get from people asking me how to deal with all kinds of desires and what have you. The second one says, desires are immeasurable. They are inextinguishable. You, indistinguishable. you can't stop them. You know, uh, we had a group here from Rowan College and the young girls wanted to know if I felt, if I ever felt lustful. You know, and I said, of course I do. I am right now. <laughs> 400 times a day I fall in love. You see? 400 times a day, and so forth. 
Those desires are inextinguishable, but I vow to extinguish them. And the third being, this dharma is immeasurable. To any time you think you understand it conceptually, you've, you've fooled yourself even worse. But I vow to master it nonetheless. And the mastering, as the rabbi is sharing a moment ago, doesn't come from just believing the teachings, which I don't. doesn't come from even convincing yourself they're the truth, which I have yet to do. It comes from living it and practicing it. And that's the problem in our world today. We have, you know, I often reflect about this. I know in my lifetime, I've come to know hundreds, if not thousands, of holy people. People living from their faith, from their beliefs, and so forth. When you consider the numbers of people living that way throughout the planet, why are things the way they are? What is the problem? And the only th solution that I've come up with is, again, we have a lot of people mimicking, as Shogun Trumpa says, the ego, when it really wants to be spiritual, will mimic the teachings, he said, and so that it becomes convinced that it is spiritual. So we need to get really serious, as I said, about our life as a vow, making our spiritual practice a vow. And it is a vow that we never break, because the moment we break it, we find ourselves back at the beginning. It's time to get authentic, and it's time to get honest about the importance of saying what we mean, mean what we say, and having our lives be an expression of that level of excellence. Precisely because I am not this, not that, I am fully this, fully that. Beyond nature, I am nature. Beyond God, I am God. Beyond the cosmos altogether, I am the cosmos and its very gesture. Where there is pain, I am there. Where there is love, I am present. Where there is death, I breathe easily. Where there is suffering, I move unconstrained. On September 11th, 2001, I attacked me in a distant part of the galaxy on an unremarkable planet and a speck of dust in the corner of manifestation, all of which are wrinkles in the fold of what I am. And none of which affects me, none of this affects me in the slightest. Therefore, I'm totally undone. I cry endlessly. The sadness is infinite. The despair dwarfs galaxies. My heart weeps monsoons. I can't breathe in this torture. Totally insignificant, insignificantly totally. No difference, truly. Atoms and gods are the same. Here in the world of one taste, the smallest insult is equal to the greatest. I'm happy beyond description with every act of torture. I'm sad beyond compare with every act of goodness. I delight in seeing pain. I despise seeing love. Do those words confuse you? Are you still caught up in opposites? Must I believe the dualistic nonsense that the world takes as real? 
victims and murderers, good and evil, innocence and guilt, love and hatred, what dream walkers we all are. Love in your heart, you're caught in illusion. Compassion in your soul, wake up. You're a million miles off the mark, wondering what to do, what it means, how to respond, where to find love, how to show compassion, all totally off the mark, careening between the opposites, caught in endless roving dreams that have no reality at all. Let the spiral do what it must to handle these affairs, and then tell me, can you show me your original face exactly here and now? Who is aware of wanting love? Who is aware of the pain of the attacks? Who is aware of wanting to practice compassion? Who is aware of all those objects? Forget those objects and show me this self, this authentic self, and I will show you the cosmos. If you're familiar with Vipassana practice, there's a, a very, very advanced meditation in Vipassana called Tonglen. And Tonglen practice is to sit quietly and to, it goes through a progression, but eventually what you do is you visualize somebody who has horrible pain in their life, physical pain, emotional pain, spiritual pain. You imagine this person or these groups of people, and as you breathe in, you breathe all that pain and suffering into your body and into your spirit. And you breathe out love and compassion for that person. And you breathe in all the pain and suffering. And you can breathe in all the pain and suffering of the world. So often when these instructions are given, and again, it's usually not done as a beginner's meditation, someone always raises their hand and says, but what happens, in fact, it was uh, Maizumi Roshi, somebody raised their hand and said, but what happens if you absorb all that stuff and you get sick? Which never has happened. Never, ever, ever has happened. And Maizumi Roshi said, well, then you know you're doing it right. <laughs> I want to give you a different perspective on what to do next. And we've talked about this here in the, in the monastery. When I, becoming a rabbi was my second profession. And I wasn't sure I was going to really do that. And I met with my spiritual teacher at the time. And I said to him, I think, I, I think I, I'm going to be a rabbi. And he looked at me and he said, oh, you're under the impression you have a choice. Yeah. <laughs> he said, I want to make it clear to you that this is your spiritual path and that you've been deployed. He often used that terminology. You've been deployed. If we take a perspective that says, you know what? I can be spiritual, I can take the vows, I can, I can do spiritual practice, I can try to make the world a better place, if I want to. Mm. If I want to. Uh, and that gets back to the beginning of this conversation. Why would you want to? Well, because it makes me feel good, it makes me happy, maybe I could do away with suffering, I could avoid who I really am. Those are the reasons to. But to take a perspective that says, the universe relies on you to do this. That's, listen to that carefully, all of you in this room. The universe relies on you to help it reach its natural conclusion, to bring about authenticity and honor and morality and justice in the world. So I want to tell each and every one of you, you've been deployed. I deputize you. 
to be able to do that, to go out in the world and do that because it is the future of the universe. It is the way, it is the, the evolution of the universe to move in that direction. And either you're for that, you're for it or you're against it. Okay, be for the evolution of the universe and help us. It was also Maizumi Roshi who said, you have two choices in life, to go with the flow or to be dragged. <laughs> <laughs> and that is, again, what the rabbi just said. The, the force of the universe, the flow of the universe, the direction of the universe is spiritual. The direction of the universe is to constantly become more and more of what we have always been. It is authenticity, it is commitment, it is benevolent service, it is loving, it is compassionate, and so forth. And the question is, the only question in your life is, when are you going to go with the flow and stop being dragged there? Because dragged you will be, because yes, authentic spirituality is a vocation, not a vacation. It is a calling to engage and enter into your life from a very clear, principled, a very clear, identifiable way of being. And again, as long as the world continues to accept the thought that just because I feel this way, I can be this way, or just because I think this way, it is true that suffering will continue to compound. It is the individual whose no is no and whose yes is yes that understands the heartbeat of the universe and the direction that human beings, and I think that that's where we are right now. We are at a threshold. The universe is saying, are you ready to go with the flow or are you ready to be dragged? Because the universe is not about what political party is in Washington. It's not about what group has the power and who doesn't. The universe has its own plan. And either we go with it or we will be dragged by it. So calling all bodhisattvas, calling all angels, calling all truly spiritual beings, you are the missing link. You are purposefully been called to the vocation of saving your world. Get about the business of doing so. Now. And I just want to say if you if you want help with that, this is the place. This place exists, this monastery and this school, these teachings exist for that next purpose of bringing about the spirituality of the world. So we ask you to continue to come in here and continue to support us in what we're doing here. Roshi and I not only do these, these public uh, talks, but we also offer private spiritual coaching. So if you want individual instruction on what to do next, you can contact us and avail yourself of that as well. Any questions? Now it's your turn. Who did our work? Is a vow a way of engaging the big ego in the spiritual practice? 
is living is, your life is, as a is, vow. No, is is taking a vow or, or taking a vow engaging the ego in practice. I, do you, I don't understand the question. For some reason, I'm not clear what you're asking. So no, it's when you make a vow. When you make a vow, what you're doing is you're, you're pulling the ego on your side, on the side of the spiritual practice, because now oh, I, okay. it's going to see yes. you varying from that vow yeah. as a threat. Yeah. Ego is constantly operating at an opposition, from an oppositional position. It has its own singular and exclusive design purpose. Therefore, when the being recognizes Ego is defined as the state of the affairs of the, of the being's consciousness when the being has mistakenly identified with its thoughts, feelings, and emotions. Ego's design and singular purpose is the survival of those thoughts, feelings, and emotions. Therefore, it is only interested in behaviors and actions and ways of being from the being that appease that, that uh, bureaucracy. Okay? That appease that. So yes, when the being stands on his own two feet or her own two feet and declares, however innumerable all beings are, I vow to love them all, then yes, there is going to be conflict, as you know. Mm -hmm. And this is how you deal with that conflict. It's the only way, you know, authenticity and what I call vocation is the only, that's why since ancient times, you either became a merchant back in ancient times, you know, a craftsman or a monk, okay? The Buddha himself had a choice of either going this way, the prophet said to his father, or this way. He chose the monastic, if you will, path because he understood the power of ego. And he understood that, again, this life as a monk was the only path to deal with that. And I believe it's the, I think that, I think it will be, as Thomas Merton wrote about it in the 60s, when nuclear, uh, when nuclear uh, possibilities were a threat at that time, he said that he believed that there was a group of people throughout the world committed to this contemplative life and this life of vows and values that were keeping us from destroying the entire planet, just by their presence in the world. So yes, the answer, the short answer is yes. The long answer is what I just said. Any other questions? So the bottom line is, is that I decided to talk about this tonight for two reasons. One, I've gotten terribly frustrated talking about it for 42 years and getting the results that I've seen. And second, it's a prelude to next month's uh, Zen Chat when we will be joined by a mutual friend of ours and the topic will be spirituality, religion, and politics. And we're going to talk about these things because, as the rabbi said, you have been deployed. Until you get it, that we are in this together, and that how we live our life together, committed to virtue, committed to love, committed to the teachings, committed to being in the world as spiritual beings, immersed in this human experience that we call life, until we get that unity of thought, unity of mind, unity of commitment, I don't believe anything's going to change in the world. And not too long ago, in one of my blogs, I wrote about this, and I quoted a man from, uh, from, uh, who wrote uh, about this in the Harvard... Um, 
Yeah, Harvard Business Review. And he talked about how the large crowds, he was responding to uh, what we've seen and continue to see in this country uh, since the elections. He talked about how the large crowds, he said, get their power from the smaller groups that make up those crowds. And I decided in this particular blog to take it one step further. And the smaller groups get their power from the individuals. Each of us are like the links of a chain. That chain as a whole is as strong as its weakest link. And that is why I'm appealing to you individually and to everyone that comes here in whatever group or form or shape they arrive collectively, that we cannot take for granted that we are at a threshold nationally and globally. I believe the universe is saying, this is it. We've waited long enough. This is the hour. You're either going to be dragged or you're going to go with the flow. You're going to be part of the problem or you're going to be, you know, part of the problem or part of the solution. And the solution, I have always been convinced, continue to be convinced, and the day that somebody has, convinces me otherwise, you'll come here and I won't be here. I say, because it won't make any sense to be here. And that is the spiritual path of virtue and of commitment and of devotion to the practice and most of all benevolent service and I want to just say something about that in a moment to everybody who has defined spirituality different than what I've been talking about show me the evidence from the time of the days of Moses and the prophets through the life of the Buddha through the life of the, the Messiah and so forth and so forth what always followed every one of their enlightenments, what always followed, which I consider to be the fruits and the evidence of their enlightenment, was that they returned to the people to serve and to liberate. And that's the evidence of a truly enlightened being. That's the evidence of, of a truly spiritual being. Our spiritual practice is not for us alone. It's designed to strengthen and nurture us so that we can go back into the world and help others be liberated. That's why in Zen the practice is when I take this seat to meditate, I recite a small Dharani that says something like, Here upon this seat I awake, not for myself alone, but for all sentient beings. The life of the Bodhisattva, which is considered in Buddhism the highest level of consciousness, is a life of benevolent service. The Bodhisattva is that iconic being, that level of consciousness that says over and over again, I will not enter Nirvana and stay in the consciousness of Nirvana until all beings have been liberated from suffering and enter with me. That is the true meaning of not only the life of a Bodhisattva and of a monk and of a spiritual being, but I believe the life of a human being. If my life is not about relationship with you and my sense of responsibility to be part of that relationship in a way that benefits you, I have nothing to offer. Nothing. And that's the true meaning of all of this. Anything else? I have a question. Hi. Hi. Um, I've been listening to all these words and you had some really beautiful words. 
and I'm sitting here thinking, so how do I take what you are saying out that door and into the world on the drive home as I go through my days? Had what does this mean? Does my do my thoughts, my words, and my actions, the moment I exit this very safe place to be authentic. Here you get to be authentic. Do my thoughts, my words, and my actions benefit myself and others in every way? So I might say to you something that keeps coming up for me, and it's, it was my earliest spiritual practice. It was the first spiritual practice and what I'm about to tell you exists literally and metaphorically. Tomorrow morning when you wake up and get out of bed, make your bed. Okay? Take care of your house. Take care of yourself. That includes your body, your mind. Take care of those you love. Okay? Take care of your passion. Don't ignore your passion. Your passion is your teacher, and so forth. And don't forget the world. In this way, every person you come in contact with, no matter how brave and courageous and assured they may sound, when they're alone in the dark, they're just trying to get through the night. How can you benefit that? Even if it means trembling with them. We need to be honest with each other. We're all just trying to get through the night. And if that's true, and I believe it is, then we need to be there for each other. The best we can be there for each other. Because some people you can't be there for no matter what, and so forth. And then you move on to the next one because the spirit cares only about flying. As to who does the flying, it has a passing interest, and so forth. So really the, the, the simple answer is take care of your life. That's all that's expected of you. And help others in taking care of their lives. Be a benefit wherever you can. That's all you need to do. Leave the talking about it and the teaching about it to us. We'll do that job. But the way you benefit us is to go out there and do that. Even on your drive home. Drive. And then come back here and take care of me. And take care of kind win. We need community. We need Sangha, we need each other. I need you, you need me, and we need to tell the truth about that and stop ignoring the fact that uh, none of us is going to get out of here alive and none of us is going to get out of here whole without each other. Does that answer your question? Thank you. Thank you. I need a drink. <laughs> Do Roshis do that? No, they can't. Yeah. <laughs> of course we do. I do. <laughs> Any other questions? Hi. Right, so what I struggle with is family right now. Um, I've kind of been always on my own path. I've always been like after authenticity and know that that's you know true. But what I what I'm now struggling with is I'm realizing how much of a threat it is to my family, and I understand it's because a lot of their fear as to who they thought I was going to be and what they thought my life was going to look like, and it doesn't, and I think it threatens them a bit 
in a way that they feel like they have to protect me and, oh, what are you doing? They just, they like, it's funny, they know me, they know I've always gone my own path, but they still, I feel like they don't accept my true nature. And I know I have to stay grounded in my power and really grounded for who I am, but I can't say it doesn't bother me at times that I feel like almost that they're rejecting me, but they're not accepting my true self. Although I try to be compassionate towards them and say, I, I, I feel like I know why they're doing this. So I'm trying to look for the balance of living in my power and going my own path, but also like trying to, because I still love them and I care about them. So trying to care for them and show compassion towards them and not be upset with them at the same time. Okay, so, so I'm having can a I, struggle. Can we have an honest conversation? Yeah. Okay. So, and I, I feel you and I believe you're sincere and everything you've said. But isn't the truth is you want to be able to continue to maintain your own integrity and not be bothered by their resistance, right? So the way you deal with that is to maintain your own integrity and be bothered by their existence. And maintain your own integrity and be bothered by their existence or their resistance to your, your integrity. You're not going to change them and it is not your job to change them. Neither is it your job to convince them of your own integrity. Your job is to remain grounded in your own integrity and know that that's going to bother you. They're going to bother you. And learn to be with the emotions about that, not as a threat to you, but as part of the pact. You know? You know, a friend of mine, when I first started this work back in the late mid-70s, a um, friend of mine, friends of mine who had gone off to college, a different path than I took, would come down to the community. At that time, I was ministering to single mothers who were in abusive relationships and so forth. And uh, friends of mine used to come down in the summer and work with me. Uh, they were from MIT and Boston University and what have you. And one night I was sitting in my room after a day of doing work with, with these different families. And George and I were having a beer. And George looked at me and he said, who do you think you are to be happy? <laughs> so the message in that statement was, again, uh, people have a difficult time with grounded people. Okay? And that's okay. That's okay. So there is no solution to the emotions, especially family, okay? Because early on as children, the most important thing we want from our family is acceptance. In fact, that's what gets us running off independent when that doesn't happen. That's what's okay. bothering me is okay. I don't feel accepted and yeah. I don't, for my true nature. You don't need their acceptance. You don't need their acceptance, and you're not going to discover that, you hear what I'm about to say, you are not going to discover what I just said to you until you practice what I told you to practice. Maintain your grounded, be bothered, sit with the emotions of feeling rejected until you move beyond them. And you're never going to achieve that freedom you're looking for from that need until you do that. As we started out, we used spiritual, you know, Rabbi talked about a whole time in his life, which is true about me and everybody, where it was, no, I don't want to feel that spirit. You know, people, you know, I've had people over the years say to me things like, 
Zen masters don't get shook. Uh. <laughs> you know, I get shook every day and what have you. But the difference between the Zen master and others who get shook is that I've learned that I can remain a master and shook. You see? But I didn't learn that by having someone coming over and saying, it's okay. <laughs> it, it's, it's no sons of bitches. It's not you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just find it hard. Sorry, my Sicilian just came out. <laughs> the playing field is so uneven in terms of if we are discovering our authentic self and our family is not, and the people around us are not, yeah. and people are at all different kinds of levels of understanding, um, spirituality, spiritual growth tends to, to play havoc with how many marriages am I on? Yeah. Anyway, and, but so it plays havoc with with relationships. But Roshi's advice, I, I would absolutely totally agree with: be who you are, be authentic, um, and maybe in your authenticity, you'll be an example to others for them to discover their authenticity. Maybe not. Yeah, and I feel like lately I've had to draw some boundaries too, which I feel bad about, but in a way I'm just like, you know, yeah. I'm sorry. Well, like Roshi says, feel bad <laughs> and recognize your, your discomfort. And, yeah. and I mean that literally, because when you are able to sit with those bad feelings and experience them fully, they will disappear for you. Mm-hmm. If you keep resisting them, they will persist. Mm-hmm. So this, you think the work is the family approval. Now the work is, look at me, (laughs) your self-approval. So you are disapproving your way from their eyes. Okay? So the moment you stop trying to gain their acceptance or approval, you start to see yourself from your eyes. Mm -hmm. And those feelings and emotions will drop away because they're not yours, they're theirs that you are taking on as true and factual. My father is 87 years old. I'm in my 60s. We have never, never talked about Buddhism. Okay? My mother, God bless her, she's gone in her dementia now, but when she was not in dementia, Still told people I was a Catholic priest. (laughs) (laughs) So how do you balance that, though? I mean, I feel like you're trying to balance. I don't. It's not my responsibility to balance that. Neither is it yours. Neither is it yours. It's hard because, I mean, I still have to be a family... I mean, I still love them, obviously, and how do you exist in family functions if you're, like, pissed off at them for, you know... I'm having Easter dinner with all of them tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, I know, yeah. that's where I'm so dreading I, it. You're not, what's your name? Allison. Allison. You're not listening to me. <laughs> balance it and be upset about it. Okay? And the way you balance it is to be able to hold the upset in equanimity with your own integrity. Look, let me read this again. I started with these words. Even If one glimpses God, there are still cuts and splinters and burns along the way. That's the truth about spirituality. This is why I abhor American contemporary spiritual teachers 
who are out there telling everybody, we got the secret for bliss. The secret. When you hear that, run away. Life, the Buddha said, life is suffering. Get over it. And the best way to get over it, as I said, is to maintain your integrity. Trust me. The, the discomfort with all that will drop away. I didn't think it would at one time, too. But maintain your integrity and understand that when you go home, it's going to be difficult. <laughs> <laughs> but we go home anyway, don't we? Somebody once asked uh, Ken Wilber, how do I know I'm growing spiritually? Are there any signs of spiritual growth? And he said, and he said yes. He says, you will take on more of the suffering of the people around you and the world. You will feel worse you will, you will suffer, you will cry, and you'll deal with it better than you ever have before. Mm. And someone said the same thing to me a little different, and I've quoted it time and time again. The truth will set you free. The process will piss you off. It's hard. Yeah. Come sit with us. Yes, come sit with us, Allison. Enter this sangha and sit with us. Train with us. That's what it's all about. Hi. Hi. Do you feel um, that you can be a benefit to the universe and also um, eat animals? And eat animals? Yeah. Well, you can't be a benefit to that species. Right. And they're a part of the universe. Look. Look. Um, One of the... Again, when, when Buddhism makes its way to the West, you know, the West does with it what it's done with all the religions. It turns it into a conceptual reality. Mm-hmm. So, one of my teachers was His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And I will never forget the day that someone told me he was not a vegetarian. Mm-hmm. Okay? And I was as surprised as people are when they ask me, are you a vegetarian? And the answer is no, okay? Because in Tibet, if you try to live as a vegetarian, you die. Because at that altitude, you can't farm. See, yak. So you eat yak, which is their cow, okay? And so forth. And to this day, his chemistry cannot accept a full vegetarian menu, okay? Just like mine can. I've tried it, and so forth. So what do you do with that? Okay? And what you do with that is what you do with that. You know? Uh, and that's all I really want to say about that. Okay? I don't think you have to be calm. You know, I, I heard a doctor say the other day, we take a Hippocratic oath, oath that begins with, do no harm. And yet the moment we cut the patient open, we've harmed them. That's the paradox of all things that are true. You know, monks take the same kind of oath, okay? But the moment I walk outside, I'm liable to step on a bug. So the Buddha said, maybe this will be helpful. Buddha said, here's how you practice. And he was listening to someone playing a violin the day he said this. He said, you hear that beautiful music? He said, always remember, if she ties that violin too tight, it will break. Too loose, it will not play. That's how you practice. 
But as spiritual beings, we also, before we eat, we give thanks and we try to be conscious of the source of things. So we, we may eat meat or, you know, you know you, is, you're killing animals, but you're also killing plants. I mean, the, at what point do you, you're not going to take a life? You're even taking the life of plants. But to be conscious of what you're doing, to, to eat meat or to, even to eat vegetables, to eat, eat plants and to think, oh, these, you know, I, I'm not taking life, this has nothing to do, my sustenance has nothing to do with these beings giving their lives uh, is a problem. So to, before we sit down to eat, we sit and we very, very consciously thank all the many beings that have provided for us, whether that's the cow or the chickens or anything else. We be con- it gets back to the point of the whole evening. Be conscious of what you're doing. Be conscious of it. Do it, but be conscious of what you're doing. Okay. Any other questions? Be grateful, humble heart, permission to speak Roshi. Yes. Yes. She was a nun. That's why she keeps okay. asking like that. That's why. <laughs> Your words were so beautiful tonight and so meaningful. And they probably are etched in my heart. And I am very grateful that I was called to be here tonight, as all others in this room, that we were here and meant to be here and to hear what we learned. And we're grateful you came Thank here you. too. You're here. And I'm grateful you're here tonight. Good to see you. How are you? Oh, I am what I am. Yeah. <laughs> That's friend. what Jehovah said. <laughs> My friend, Mr. Roshan. Good to see you, Elizabeth. Nate? Yes. As a chronic overgiver, I have struggled for so long. About what? As a chronic overgiver. Oh, okay. Who feels responsible for everybody's happiness ever since I tried to have saved my depressed mother from my narcissistic father. I have always struggled Sounds with. Sounds like my life. <laughs> I have always struggled with how to just immerse myself in the sort of commitment and love you're talking about without taking on that responsibility. And that's the paradox, I guess. Be able to do both at the same time. And particularly lately, as I've been thinking about trying to cut down on my clients and not absorb everybody's pain, and there is that guilt. You know, who do I respond, what calls do I respond to or not? And it seems like, I guess you're saying it's both at the same time. We can be passionately and deeply committed to loving everybody, to living a life of service. At the same time, we can choose when not, I noticed a minute ago, you said who you can't help. Well, that interested me because I'm still trying to figure out who I can't help. And how to make that distinction. Yeah. And then I'm also really into self-compassion, loving ourselves so that we can be filled with abundance. Am I getting it right that the paradox is to hold both those things at the same time? In equanimity. And Suzuki Roshi talked about a thing called wise selfishness. Right. So when I was in Cinnaminson, when our monastery was in Cinnaminson on Highland Avenue, there was a woman that came regularly who was, and I mean this literally, certifiably insane. She let you, she told you that. Right. She had a certificate. <laughs> <laughs> so she was off the wall. She was nuts. And she probably was one of very few people who gave me one of the greatest compliments. And she said to the crowd that was gathered there that night, I keep coming back and listening to him because of this reason. When I looked at his calendar for the first day, first time, I noticed one week he called sacred space. And that is the week I don't talk to anybody, teach anybody, help anybody. 
but me or now my daughter, of course, and what have you. So why selfishness is the route for people who want to help everybody? So I had a friend by the name of Mr. Fitzgerald, and I miss him to this day. And he was a Navy guy. And he was the father of a kid I grew up with and went to school with. And Mr. Fitzgerald one day said to me, you know, with his arm around me, I was very young, I was a teenager, and he said, son, let me tell you, one hand for the ship and one hand for yourself. If the ship goes down in a storm, you're in trouble. If you get thrown off the ship, you're in trouble. So that's how we do it. That's how we navigate through life. And again, uh, when you're talking about narcissistic personalities, I don't even know why you're wasting a moment. I grew up with it. I'm trying to help everybody. We, yeah. You know, <laughs> well, I don't try to help narcissists. I try that doesn't work. Yeah. Okay, and so forth. But that's, that's the point. You've got to take care of Nate. Right. Because if you don't take care of Nate, Nate can't help his patients. Right. Okay? So, uh, you know, when Katie was first born, parents came out of the woodwork to advise me. Mm -hmm. And some of the advice was pretty good when they would say, learn to pick your battles. Mm -hmm. And then you'll win the war. Okay? Thank you. And, and it's, I think it's very, very important Self-knowledge and the ability to look within and to learn about yourself teaches you what kind of service you need to provide to the world. Because so often, for the need for acceptance and the need for thinking of ourselves as a good person and a divine person, that's what sends us to go helping others and sacrifice ourselves. And that's not a good idea. You have to remain... You know, if, if you're too weak to hold on to the ship because, you know, I'm, I'm so concerned about the ship, I'm not going to hold on, you're in trouble. So self-knowledge, and what is it that you need to do for you? There's a misconception that we who are involved in spiritual practice are only concerned about ourselves and sitting on our cushions, and it's all about us. And nothing could be further from the truth. The more inwardly we turn, the more of a connection we feel with everything around us and everything in the universe. And therefore, we want to be more committed and of service to more of what's in the universe. But to do it the other way, to say I'm going to forget myself and just deal with everybody out there, it, it can be counterproductive and dangerous to you. So to turn, to do some helping on the outside, but spend your time really, really investigating what's going on with you. What maybe you're needed in the universe in a very, very particular way, different than what the way you're serving. Maybe you're needed. How would you know that unless you go inward? and look at yourself truthfully and authentically in that way. And how many people could you be helping not wasting your time with people you can't help? Well, that's right. Well, I'm also addicted to approval, but I'm hoping my counseling sessions with one of you will help get over that. That's Maybe you and Allison should work together. And you're hoping that I'm going to be able to help you? <laughs> one of you, that's, that's okay. what time for tonight, I guess. I Any other questions? Well, this was a lot of fun. <laughs> and if you're not having fun, why bother, right? So thank you again for the privilege of being with you. Okay. Uh, May 13th also, for those who can come with Jukai. Yes, if you would like to witness the ordination of lay people, 
On May 13th, we have three uh, people in our community. They're in this room, in, in fact, tonight, <laughs> except for one, including the rabbi, who will be taking the precepts and be ordained as lay monks. Uh, the rabbi, in particular, will be fully ordained as a monk in December. But for now, May 13th at 2, two o'clock, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, 2 o'clock. You're welcome to come and witness that very auspicious and beautiful ceremony. Emyo, anything? I have nothing, Richard. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you again for the privilege of being here. respectfully remind you, birth and death is the supreme matter. Everything is of the nature of impermanence. Gone, gone, forever gone. Opportunity is too often lost. Do not squander your life. I see a safe journey. I see a safe return. Good night.